Hey, what's up my friends? I hope you're doing well. I've been thinking a lot about morality over the last few weeks. What does it mean to be a moral person and how do we, how do we raise moral children? Um, how do we define morality? To me, in my view, I think it means acting in a way that serves others well. So what do we need to do in order to do this? That's what I want to talk about today. And um, I hope you're doing well. My name is Devin Tan. I'm a youth forensic psychiatrist. I'm a dad and the host of the Huddle Wisdom podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. If it's the first time you are here listening to us, we talk about parenting. We talk about mental models that you can use in your day-to-day -day life to navigate the tricky trickiness that is family life but life in general lofty goals i know but i do believe that if you can carry and use these frameworks with you in your life i think it will help you to thrive and it uh, and, and the other thing is, I think it will help other people to thrive. Actually, I don't think it. I know it. I believe it. So, morality. Um, there's different ways to look at it, but my feeling and what I believe is that there's this sense of serving others well. Uh, to be a moral person you have to conduct your yourself in such a way that in most things that you do it also benefits your fellow man now i'm not saying that you should just bend over and you know be a be a rug <laughs> walking mat and allow people to just step all over you no that's not what i am saying okay so uh, what i'm saying is that you have to learn how to be strong enough in yourself that you can suspend your own needs and wants in order to serve others well. Okay. And what I believe, and it goes without saying, is that trust and compassion are very critical pillars that sustains a relationship that allows that moral fiber to uh, to grow, expand um, like a muscle. You know, I'm talking about muscle fibers. By the way, uh, you'll notice that some some of my analogies might sound quite strange. Um, they don't sound strange to me because I, I think th this is how I visualize some of these concepts sometimes. And it, it is a bit, they, they do, they, they're probably a little bit strange if it's the first time you're hearing it. But I hope, I hope, hope it makes sense to you. Um, if it doesn't make sense, if anything I say doesn't make sense, um, please email me. Hello at huddlewisdom.com. Very happy to answer your questions. Um, I do also have a day job, so sometimes 
there might be a delay in getting back to you, but I make every effort to get back to people that contact me on the Huddle Wisdom um, uh, platform. Okay, so uh, what was I saying earlier? Right, so trust and compassion, uh, critical pillars for sustaining a relationship that allows that moral fiber to, to grow, to expand. These are fundamental things. Without these pillars, you're going to have defects in the integrity of your relationship to a person. And under stress, uh, it increases the risk of that relationship collapsing. Um, so it probably needs to be said over and, and over again that trust and compassion which seems so basic and fundamental to human relationships, right? They, it needs to be said over and over again because uh, what I observe in, out there in, in the world is that we don't often talk a lot about these concepts. We talk about a lot of other things, but how to actually form good moral relationships that are sustained um, it's, it's hard to find you know it's hard to find these sorts of themes being discussed every day um, if you have sources of information that you think would be good for me to share here um, please let me know but trust and compassion, these are the first things that need to exist between people who have relationships before relationships that are moral can thrive. You know, parent to child, child to parent, friend to friend, doctor to patient, employee to employer, teacher to student. You know, just think back to all the relationships that you have been, uh, that, that you've experienced to be conflict-ridden or troublesome. I bet you if I asked how much trust you have in the other person, you'd probably say next to nil. Can I assume that? There might be exceptions, might be ex exceptions, but it's, it's, it's hard to think why there would be exceptions to this rule. You know, if you are in a conflict-ridden relationship, a troubled relationship, if I asked you how much trust you have in that person, I would be very skeptical if you said that you had a lot of trust in the other person. I would also be very skeptical if you were to tell me that the other person treated you with compassion. Very skeptical. If you were in a relationship that was thriving and um, wholesome, life-giving, the chances are, if I ask you that same question, you'd probably say the degree of trust, compassion shared between one another would be high. It's so important, I think, that I wonder why we don't talk about it more. It should be... Uh, so natural, you know, to, to, 
to, to build relationships um, based on trust and compassion. But it's, it seems not so simple anymore. And I, I do wonder why that is. You know, it's a lot more difficult to foster, to establish, to grow, to cultivate trust and compassion between one another. It seems a lot more fraught, you know, in the world that we live in today, the digital age. We, we used to live in these smaller communities, villages, caves. These days we live in a world of plenty, but we are, we are so, so isolated from one another. You know, we, we have boundaries, we have fences, we have silos. We have different departments, we have different specialties. Now, of course, there, are use, there is usefulness in splitting things up, right? It's necessary sometimes because uh, we only have finite resources, yes. So sometimes we need dividing barriers. But I think those barriers also have to be porous so that we can communicate with one another and share information. Uh, one of the problems that sometimes um, comes up in day-to-day in -day work within the mental health system, if you work in the mental health system, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, a lot of people work in silos. So within mental health, and I assume other areas of medicine, there are silos. You know, you have addiction psychiatry, you have child psychiatry, you have youth psychiatry, you have forensic psychiatry, you have, and then you have youth forensic psychiatry, and then you have uh, pain psychiatry and consult liaison, so many different departments. But everyone, after a while, under stress, um, you, you see this happen in, in, in these large organizations where people start to uh, with trust between departments starts to break down. Um, if there's a lack of communication between departments, because there's no, it, 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 there's these artificial structures, these barriers in place that stops or deters communication. Maybe not intentionally, but by the way things are organized uh, in the protocols and the systems in place, um, rigid systems, without any flex, you start to see mistrust between departments and patients often fall between the gaps. So I'll give you one example, very common example. And I'm sure people, <laughs> people in management might not like me for saying this, but okay, I'll give you an example. Okay, so a, a man with addiction uh, to alcohol his story is he uses alcohol because he has been so depressed, so anxious. The only thing that's helped him is alcohol. But he's brave enough to, to go to the mental health service to seek help. Uh, and then the psychiatrist there will tell him, you have to get off your drugs before we can help you. You have to go upstairs to get your drugs, your, your addiction problem sorted. He goes upstairs. And then he, he gets told by the addiction psychiatrist up there that you have depression and anxiety, so you need to go downstairs to treat your depression and anxiety and then your addiction will get 
solved. Um, and now, now he's frustrated and um, angry, upset, and he feels he's going to do something rash to himself. And he goes downstairs and he, and he blasts off at the psychiatrist and, you know, case managers or whatever. And then they label him with a personality disorder. He's attention-seeking and drug-seeking. He just wants drugs. Uh, of course, he's asking for something to help him to calm down because he doesn't have the skills to do that. But that's why he was there in the first place, so that he could get help to do that. The next thing that happens is that he gets discharged discharged back to his doctor. This happens all the time and it is really sad. Um, <laughs> you know, so, in, it, so these barriers which were supposed to be helpful because sometimes dividing things up so that we can specialize uh, helps us, I guess, to divide labor, helps us to I don't know, get, get good at doing certain things really well. But then the idea was that we should come back together, share information, and then do the job together so that we can do an even better job if we weren't, um, you know, to work together, right? We're better together, uh, and that's what it's supposed to be. But instead, we have these divisions. We have mistrust. And then we have lack of compassion for the patient, for the person that we're trying to serve in the first place. We forget that the purpose of those separate parts is to get good at those separate things so that we can then be awesome together. So to me, that's why, that's why I always say, you know, families with a mum and a dad who are in a trusting relationship are much more likely to produce better results in their parenting lives. Now, of course, some families don't have a mum and a dad together, okay? Don't, don't drag me over the coals for saying that. I'm saying it's, it's better to work as a team. It's better to have a team in a trusting relationship for the benefit of our kids, right? It's, it's so weird that um, mental health services have been critis criticized for being untrustworthy. <laughs> well, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise to you now, now that I've told you what I've told you, okay? Um, and there's been such a breakdown in the quality of services that people get. There's a lot of good people that work in mental health services, but I think they get subjected to a, 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 a culture of, a, a way of serving others that really doesn't serve people. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why that is, because this does tie into some of the things, the earlier things I was talking about, why why is it that there's so much mistrust, so much lack of compassion? And it's not just about burnout. It's not just about burnout. Burnout is just a sy symptom of a system 
that is ill, that is sick. It's not doing well. And um, a lot of the things that, a lot of the, 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 the reasons why I think things are breaking down are the same reasons why I think relationships between people break down, uh, why we get mistrust and um, an erosion of compassion for one another, and then immorality. Uh, so, you know, it's the opposite of what we want, which is a moral relationship, moral way of being. Serve others rather than be self-serving. So, okay, so I'm going to run through a few things that um, I think are the factors why we found ourselves in this place, in this, in this conundrum. And hopefully what you might, what we, okay, so, so after I share uh, the, the, the reasons why I think we've, we've gotten into this mess, we can then reverse engineer, uh, we, can re re we can reverse engineer this uh, and then think of practical solutions that might help, help us out of this mess. I hope. Okay, so in, in no particular order, the first thing is that went wrong, I think, is this idea of being overly paternalistic. You know, my way or the highway. Um, and unfortunately, in medicine, there is something of a paternalistic approach to uh, to patient care. That is changing. Yes, that's changing. And um, but but there's a lot of paternalism in what we do. I remember when I was a fifth year medical student, I was doing my pediatric run at Middlemore Hospital, actually. I can't remember what year it was. But um, uh, this, this really wise pediatrician um, pulled me aside in the emergency department where I was um, assigned. Um, and he said to me, you know, Devin, um, a lot of mums bring their kids in here with coughs and sneezes and, um, you know, sick kids. Um, and sometimes they're not actually sick, you know, sometimes the mum might just be really anxious about, about things. But having said that, having said that, uh, if you have a mum that tells you she's really worried about her child, and she's not sure why, she can't put her finger on it, but she's really worried, nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, there will be something that is not right. And nine times out of ten, your decision to discharge her, discharge her child, will be wrong. Now, I don't know if that's actually correct, okay? I don't, I don't know. But I took that to heart. I took it to heart. And... Um, and it's something that I try and keep in mind as well in my own practice. 
And I believe I do because my, my first, the first thing that, that I do when patients tell me things is that I believe my patient. <laughs> That's my usual starting point. Um, so I'm naturally a skeptical person. So I think that does guard me a little bit from being naive. But what I would say is doctors, we are not the holder of truth. Parents, we are not the holder of truth. I'm not saying that everything is relative, okay? I do believe that there is truth. There is truth. There are absolutes in life. They have to be. They have to be absolutes in life. I don't like this idea of relativism that is now uh, so popular. You know, this post-truth stuff, this post-modernist stuff, where you get to define your own rules, you get to define your own truth. I don't think that's correct. I think we find our truth together. There's truth, but in order to get there, you must learn to incorporate other people's points of views, perspectives, okay? Yes, there are things that, obviously there are things that are relative to one another, clearly, but this idea that there is no objective truth, to me, doesn't make sense. One rule for me, one rule for you. There's no consistency of approach. It's confusing. It confuses children confuses patience, okay? But when you have a system where everyone thinks that there is this relative idea of truth, one psychiatrist says one thing, another psychiatrist says another thing, one case manager, one nurse says another thing, it's so confusing, so conflicting. So no one's talking to one another Okay. No one's learned how to think critically, to start with the facts. The fact is, a mother's brought a child in, she thinks that there's something wrong with the child. Let's start there. Start there. Believe her that she believes that something is wrong with the child. To her, something is wrong. Something's not right. Something's changed in her world. Something's changed in that child's world. Let's try and figure out what that is. It may not be sinister, it may not be dangerous, it may not be life-threatening, but that mum is worried. We need to find out why. And that's what that pediatrician taught me all those years ago, that stuck with me. And that's what we need, I think, in our systems. Unfortunately, that, that way of thinking is, sadly, not that common. But we need to apply the same kind of thing to our relationships. Because, because when we validate another person's distress, when we validate another person's concerns, that helps us to establish trust. When someone comes to you with a problem, they are in a position of vulnerability, okay? 
So they're not going to trust you if you exploit that vulnerability and and approach the situation with a power over um, manner, paternalistic, talking down to someone, condescending, patronizing. You, maybe you don't intend it to be that way, but it's, it's going to be perceived in that way. And that person is not going to trust you. They're going to perceive a lack of compassion because there is a lack of compassion on your part. No doubt about that. The next thing I want to say is I believe that there's this populism and this woke ideology seeping into our systems as well, which, which is undergirded by all this postmodernist relative stuff, this post-truth stuff. And it sucks. It sucks for patients. It sucks for our kids. There has to be moral absolutes. There have to be absolutes. We may not understand what those, where those absolutes are exactly, but we need to share ideas constructively in order to understand where those truths are. Another thing that I think has caused an erosion in trust and compassion is um, in these systems, these siloed systems, these divisive systems that we work in and that we operate in and that we live through, um, there are these nonsense psychotherapeutic ideas, um, you know, the, these pop psych psychological ideas where people, there's this one-size-fits-all approach when you use these instruments, these ideas as blunt tools. It doesn't work for everyone. You need to learn how to read the room, okay? And pop psychology ideas, they're just tools. They're not one-size-fits-all um, approaches you can use in every situation. Unfortunately, in our siloed way of thinking, we have separated out um, staff and resources uh, into teams that work from one modality in a very strict way, which hamstrings people into this inflexible way of working and so if you apply a certain modality, a certain approach to someone where it doesn't fit with them, they're going to feel invalidated. They're going to feel like they can't trust you. And they're going to perceive that you don't have any compassion for their situation. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to stop talking about that bit because it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let me give you an example. Okay, in psychiatry, um, we psychiatrists delude ourselves sometimes into thinking that we can apply labels to people 
based on a collection of symptoms that people travel with through time. And, um, and, then, uh, <laughs> and then allocate uh, a type of therapy in order to treat that person who has that label. Um, so, for example, someone might have, I don't know, a personality disorder, right? And so that personality disorder becomes a signal that they are not allowed to have access to certain parts of the system because their treatment is, uh, is supposed to only be within the personality disorder camp. And so you have to have your treatment under the personality disorder treatment team who only works uh, with a certain modality. This is completely crazy because people are not labels. People, everyone will have a personality disorder from time to time if you're under enough stress, right? So to me, this makes uh, no sense at all. Um, what we should be doing is actually learning about people's stories. We should be able to connect with people so that we can put their symptoms and their uh, mental health experiences in context. And then what we do is we match our treatment to individual troubles. It's not rocket science, right? It's not rocket science. Well, what about all these departments, all these specialized departments? Well, that's fine. So if, if you think that someone has a particular symptom that you think needs a certain sort of treatment in order to fix that symptom, I'm speaking in, in very simplistic terms here. Then you can ask your friend in the other department, hey, I've got a patient with this symptom. Can you come and help me out with this? And once you fix that, I can carry on with the other bits. Simple. Simple. We don't have to be precious. But that's not how it works, unfortunately. But it should. We have these... We, we, we live in a very selfish culture, okay? No one wants to take on more work because we're all burnt out. Why are we all burnt out? Because no one wants to help each other. That's why there's this idea, this pursuit of happiness, this um, pursuit of self-gratification, which is not what, in my belief, not what Thomas Jefferson meant. You know, Aristotle talks about eudaimonia, which was, I think, his word for happiness, which was bound to the, these ideas of, of uh, being a virtuous person, being noble, wise, courageous, having uh, temperance, being temperate, right? Um, and it wasn't about seeking comfort, okay, or maximum comfort. 
um, it's not about being um, the richest person you can be, okay? It's not about having the best job, all right? It's, it's not about comfort, in my view. Aristotle, Thomas Jefferson, and even biblically, it doesn't talk about happiness being the pursuit of comfort, self-gratification. Happiness was always tied to uh, being virtuous, serving other people. Because if when we know how to serve other people, everyone does that, it raises everyone's happiness. Because, <laughs> because it improves trust and compassion in, within humanity. Right? Psalm 106, verse 3, it says, Happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Beautiful. Beautiful. Happiness is not the same as freedom from pain. It's tied to this idea of doing good for others. So we have, uh, so I believe the pursuit of happiness is a collective happiness. It's a collective happiness. We need to bring back the culture of we and erase the culture of me. Right? Because what's happening is that the more self-centered we become, the more that we love comfort, the less resilient we become. The less resilient we become. It's not convenient to help our fellow man. It takes effort. It takes energy. If we're not resilient, we are going to be selfish. And we're not going to want to help our fellow man because we need to reserve those, those juices for ourselves. Because we're not resilient, because we love comfort. It's the culture of me. So when you look at mental health services with staff that are fully locked into that culture of me, ask yourself, are these people actually resilient enough to handle my troubles? Can I trust them? Can I trust that they're going to have compassion for me? If, well, if they're not resilient, they're going to most likely suffer from compassion burnout, compassion fatigue. Compassion and empathy needs to be a core competency in my, in my view. For any mental health worker, you need to be able to show that you can, uh, you can establish trust with someone else. You can show compassion to someone else. You can be empathic. You can connect with someone else. You need to demonstrate that. You need to connect with people. How do you do that? Listen, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast episode, just, I'm going to, um, okay, for, for a limited number of people, the lucky ones, if you go to the show notes, get do do my empathic discipline course i should have called it moral discipline actually now i think about it 
it's meant for parents, but the same stuff applies for mental health workers. So actually anyone, any human being that wants to live a moral life, I encourage you to do the course. If you click on the link in the show notes, you get to pay what you want, okay? It's just a limited number of people, so get in quick. A limited number available, so just get in quick. And um, Okay, so enough of, of a plug from me there, from, from me there. Okay, so all of those things I just talked about has eroded the bonds that we have between people. There's a softening, a breaking down of things, erosion. So that's why our mental health services are so crap. <laughs> that's why it's so hard to parent these days, because we parent in silos. Okay, we're not resilient. We lack comfort, we do the easy thing, we follow the path of least resistance. So what do we need to do? Okay, there's a few things, a few things that we need to do. Reverse all those things I talked about before. But here's a, f a few things that you can start to do. Number one, self-reflection. Self-reflection. We are here for each other and not ourselves, okay? Self-reflect, I'm not talking about navel-gazing here. I'm not talking about this idea of self-reflecting in order to be self-centered. I'm suggesting that you self-reflect so you know how you are in the world around you, how you impact other people in the world around you, good or bad, so that you can serve your fellow man better by improving yourself. The second part of this is accountability. Collectively uh, committing to owning your mistakes and hang-ups and deciding to improve yourself is really, really an important aspect of self-reflection. Self-reflection on its own might be the basis for growth, but accountability, accountability is the vehicle for that growth to happen, in my view. Okay, the next thing is try and push the limits of what you think you can only handle because you are much more capable than you think. When you feel discomfort in a situation, I want you to try and find ways of increasing that sense of discomfort. Try it. You'll find that your resilience will start to grow. Fourth thing, keep showing up. Keep showing up to stuff. Keep doing stuff. Keep grinding. Keep battling. Okay. The first thing you need to battle is your own mind, your own tendency to follow the path of least resistance. Don't allow it. You want comfort. People want comfort. That's what we want. We need to learn how to embrace adversity. Learn to love the learning through adversity. So, some of you um, masochists out there will be loving this. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, I'm... I love my comfort, naturally, uh, but you know, it's very good to do something that takes you out of your comfort zone every day. Do something that scares you. I think that's what, I think that's what they say, do something that scares you every day. Fifth thing, learn to connect with other people. It's not natural for a lot of you. Do my course. Do my course. Do it. Okay, and the sixth thing, 
model model all of this stuff let your kids see you doing this stuff struggling with this stuff it's okay to struggle it's okay practice this every day all right that's enough for me my, from me my friends that's uh, enough talking and jibber jabber i hope you got something out of it if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and your family you know and if you could do something real quick for me just pause and leave me a review five star review goes a long way just increases visibility for me um helps to reach more people so Okay, my friends, I hope you have a great week. Uh, it's a long weekend here in New Zealand, and I hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe out there on the roads. And, um, yeah, I'll speak to you next time.